Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm presenting Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne, and I'm here with an award-winning architect, Anthony Martin, Director of MRTN Architects. Well done on your recent award for Shadow House in Dalesford. Thanks, Stephen. It's great to be here. I thought that uh, was an extraordinary achievement. Well done. Thank you. We're very chuffed with it. And uh, we were just saying before we sat down that, you know, there isn't really a celebration of the awards in the general media anymore the way it used to be. But look, well done anyway. Thank you. Anthony, you're an interesting one. You you came from New Zealand, from uh, Auckland, studied architecture, but you mentioned that you went sailing as a child with some architects who yes. made a difference. Some Some major architects in New Zealand. So when I was going through school, I had a bit of an aptitude for arts and a bit of an aptitude for maths and science. So uh, my teachers would mention to my mother that maybe I should consider architecture. I hadn't made up my mind. I was thinking about architecture and I was thinking about engineering also. But I did a bit of sailing. So I got invited to be the bowman on a yacht. So bowman needed to be a little guy and run up and take the spinnaker in. But the, the yacht's name was called Brunelleschi. And uh, it was owned by a bunch of architects, including um, Marsh Cook and um, Lindley Naismith, David Mitchell, Malcolm Bowes. They all sailed on it. And so they're very major characters in New Zealand architecture. Malcolm Bowes founded Architectus. Correct. That, correct. The Architectus. And so we would sail out. We would race all day. And then we would take the sails down, motor it back into the harbour. And literally, they would talk about the origins of uh, reinforced concrete. So it was a good start. So you must have been a teenager at the time. Yes, I was. 16, 17. Right. Yeah, it was a great, great start. And then that sort of tipped my mind to think about architecture. And um, and I applied and was successful to get in and, at Auckland Architecture School. So you came to Melbourne in 96. You could have stayed in Auckland and perhaps... Yeah. Worked out a career there. Yeah, I actually ended up getting a good job for uh, Noel Lane Architects. So he was a, he was a great Auckland. architect in Auckland. He worked for David Mitchell, had his own practice, and was doing very good work over in Auckland. What actually happened was a couple of things that happened. There was the Brito Mart scheme in Auckland, which uh, was actually just given by the mayor to an Australian architect. And it was a very major civic project in Auckland at the time. And I was a bit disappointed that there wasn't much of a engagement with the local architects and, and sort of an aspiration to provide good civic architecture in New Zealand, uh, like I was seen in Australia. So I decided that uh, I'd probably be, be um, you know, to, to try coming over to Australia and, and working over here because there was such great work being done, especially in uh, Melbourne. Uh, the building that really sort of put, was in my mind, was actually Story Hall, Ashton Raggett McDougall, which had just been completed, and it, re it did really amaze me, that project. It was so different to what I'd been used to and what I'd seen, and the thinking and the layers behind it, that I was very intrigued and, and, and decided to come to Melbourne rather than Sydney on the back of that, really. You didn't want to look up Ashton Raggett McDougall and see if there's work going there at the time? I did, I did. I went in, I had an interview with them. Um, I came close, we were working on the Docklands Master Plan at the time, I think probably my computer schools were not up to uh, up to scratch for them. And I actually ended up working for DCM on the Melbourne Museum instead, which was also a, a wonderful learning experience. And then you, you stayed in Melbourne for a while, and then you went to New York in 2000. 
which yeah. is quite an interesting choice because New York's not really known for its exterior architecture. It's very interior. And I would have thought your opportunities in New York would have been considerably less than here. Less for architecture, but more for personal <laughs> reasons. So I've, I've always been an Americanophile. Um, I have an uh, American uh, grandfather. Um, I grew up reading New Yorkers around at my girlfriend's house, who was a major journalist uh, in New Zealand. Her mother was a major journalist in New Zealand. So I'd always look through the goings-on around town and think, this is the town for me. So in a lot of ways, Australia was a stepping stone to try and go further afield. And we were fortunate uh, that my wife got a job in New York. And for me, that was the ultimate city. Still is, really. Um, and there you worked with David Howe. Yes, I, I began by working for a large modernist firm called Davis Brody Bond, who had been involved in some really great, uh, quite large-scale projects, including they were the executive architect for the World Trade Center Memorial. But there was a large, reasonably corporate firm, but I ended up working for David Howell, who is a New Zealander, um, working on apartment projects within a walking radius of Union Square, and it was a fantastic experience and a very good learning experience, I think, for the residential architecture that I do now because we were not dealing with waterproofing at all. We were, we were taking apartments back to a white box and then working out how the joinery came together to create the space. I and, think I might have use. even, Anthony's, I think I might have even written on him. I think his own apartment in New York was pretty yep. sensational. Yep, I think the big loft, yes. I have written on him many years ago. He's a wonderful person, very, very generous. So he's great. It was a great experience because in America, really, it can be pretty cutthroat. It can be very hard um, building there. You're dealing with the door people uh, to get access of materials into buildings. The builders are, are very tight margins, and, and it's a pretty tough industry. The clients are New Yorkers, so it's going to be hard. But we were running basically an Australasian practice in, in Union Square, so... The, the social aspect of it and the way that we related to each other was very warm and it was a great way to deal with being in New York. So back to Melbourne, when was that? Uh, we came back to Melbourne in um, 2008. Oh, okay. Um, and then you, dis you worked for a number of firms like Woodmarsh Architects, a leading firm. Uh, and then why did you want to start your own practice? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I imagine it's quite challenging. It is It is challenging, but it's, it's a challenge that I'd always had in the back of my mind that to be an architect was to have your own practice. That's how I, I saw practicing architecture, is to actually um, work on your personal designs. It's not for everybody, but for myself, that's how I, I, I foresaw it. However, I didn't think it would be possible in Melbourne, given that I wasn't from here. My education was not from here. I didn't have that depth of contacts what happened was I, I'd worked as project architect for the Australian Pavilion for Woodmarsh, which is an amazing experience and wonderful. Saw me going to Shanghai every six weeks during construction and, and it was very well received. And at the end of that process, I sort of, I just had that thought, well, if that's how I see practice being and being a sole practitioner, then I've got to give it a go now. And if it doesn't work, well, I gave it a try. What was your first project that really you thought maybe there's something here our first project was a small house in venus bay for another couple of new zealanders that we actually met on the beach down in venus bay 
And it was a deeply satisfying project. It was really hard to get through planning. It was very hard to get a builder. It took much longer than we expected. It was hard to meet the budget. But we achieved a little four-bedroom house and 120 square meters. A brand new house. Brand new house. The orientation really worked. The natural light really worked. The accommodation really works for the family. They were really happy about it and still love it. And that, that, that you know, sold it for me, that sort of experience, that personalised experience. But how does one project lead to the next? Was it published extensively or was it just word of mouth from those clients? One, the architecture takes such a long time that um, you need to have projects coming in as the, those other ones are being built. Um, so it actually takes quite a while for the loop of a project leading to another project. I'd say that I've been extremely fortunate in the architectural community in Melbourne, which is so strong. And I've been very fortunate that other architects that I know have referred me for work if I've been unable to take it on. So they basically supported my practice in the first few years. A lot of the larger practices to do small renovations and even small houses when they're running a big office really doesn't stack up. That's right. So you're actually... But there's also, there's such a depth of... um, very good architects here that there's good small practitioners that are able to pick and choose their projects and the fortunate thing is there's a bit of a trickle-down effect then if uh, they decided not to to follow up a project further. So Anthony um, when did things start to really kick in? What house would you say or project that you really felt ah it's the wheels are turning? Right yeah there's one project in particular that perhaps didn't resonate so much with the general public but uh, with other practitioners I got a lot of very positive feedback and that was the Fairfield Hacienda. I was going to mention that because it's an interesting project it was a new house in Fairfield and very community based street and you really reworked the house to almost create the front garden as the front veranda. Correct so Fairfield's a great suburb we've done a few projects in there now so there's a real, there was a strong community there, but the sort of the defining feature of this particular property was that the street was to the north. So in our general planning principles, we're trying to orientate our living spaces to the north, but we don't like to do that to the street generally. Um, people, especially in Australia, are not so keen to live openly on the street. So we we buffered those living spaces with a, an enclosed courtyard, which had these large punched openings to the street. So there was layers of connection from the footpath to this front yard, to the courtyard, to the living spaces. Can you actually, can neighbours actually stand on the pavement, look through to the living area? They can. They can. Glass is interesting. Glass is actually reflective during the day. So it's pretty difficult to see into the house during the day. You'll tend to see just the reflection of yourself. At night, you can filter it with pull-down blinds. But I was... Interesting, when we did the photographs there, we spent a bit of time and the number of conversations I had with people just passing down the street while we were in the courtyard space was fantastic. There is a social and neighbourhood interaction that occurs there. Interestingly, I I had another client from that house. They'd passed the house a few times and engaged us to to do their place. But they said that um, when they went with their children, that was the quickest way to walk back to their house but it took so long because they would get sort of caught up picking some courgettes at the front and using the swing out the front that the quick way is actually take the longer way back. You mean using the swing in the owner's 
front garden. It, there's actually we put a swing in the uh, the tree the, in the verge in the grass verge, so this sort of extends the house uh, to the roadside and landscape the grass verge as well. So it becomes like a community attraction. That's right. It was. Um, you. So that was obviously. What, it received a lot of publicity or word of mouth? It received a lot of publicity. It was in Houses magazine. Um, it got a commendation in the Architecture Awards um, and uh, was shortlisted for the Houses Awards. Uh, and it was in some open houses as well and tours. So I think that there was just a... It resonated with people about how you actually deal with that north to the street. Um, and privacy. And, and privacy and design and... And like I say, a lot of architects came up and were very complimentary on it. And I must say, it's still a compliment when people will say to me, you know what, I presented your house the other day to a future client uh, about how we could deal with the same situation. And uh, that's always nice. Is that kind of situation, you know, one that you actually give back to the street, is it something that you'd find occurring in Auckland? Is it something that you think could only work in Melbourne or you think... That's becoming more of a trend that people are actually wanting to be more integrated to the streetscape. Yeah, I think I think what the thing is in these suburbs. So we're families are staying put in these suburbs that are closer to the city, and making more of that land. So there's a whole lot of those places that are like fairly run-down workers' cottages on decent sizes of land, like about 300, 500 square metres. And families are realising that there's a benefit to staying in that relatively inner suburban location. Like Fairfield. Like Fairfield, Northcote. Exactly. But wanting to live in a... As if they were... There was a greater density to the way they're living. So that involves that outreach and becoming part of the community rather than locking behind a big fence and a two-car garage. Now, look, I've just been very privileged to see your latest home, which is in Dalesford, called the Shadow Cottage. Really very lovely house. It's more than that. It's an award-winning house. But tell me about it. It's very understated from the front. It's really just a cottage. Correct. The first thing you see is just the cottage. You could have easily, like many or some architects would have, done just bolted over and said look there's really not worth anything giving me it was quite touching because the owners actually had a connection to victorian central right you know to yes. central victoria in the victorian times tell me about it yeah i mean i, I think that the the very important starting point with that project is the clients uh, martin and cheryl were just wonderful and very intellectually engaged in the process and what we were trying to do so that was important so when it started with um, with them and their connection to the existing house, which was really in very poor condition. So there was an original worker's cottage that had been sort of appended to down the hill over a number of years. We retained and essentially had to rebuild the front cottage and restore it, essentially. Which was a lot, probably a lot more money than just knocking it over and it, starting again. Correct, it was. And there's a nostalgia that's attached to that cottage. And the owners, they, they showed me these very original Victorian photos with people, you know, in their Sunday best on the front veranda. So there was a lot of work to retain the cottage, but also the aspect and view of the cottage. So that it sort of stood proudly on the top of the, the hill where it was located. So conceptually, we then developed this idea that the extension that we would add 
become literally the built form of the shadow that was cast in the morning. So the, ex, the, the Victorian cottage is very sort of white and prim and proper, and the extension is a dark shadow behind the house. But then it, interestingly it goes from this Victorian context and garden at the front to an Australian eucalyptus nature reserve at the rear. So it transforms, the house becomes Victorian cottage going to kind of like a bush hut, if you like, at the back as it slopes down with the land. And um, Cheryl and Martin were also very inspired by Nezu Museum in uh, Tokyo because their son lives there, not at the Nezu Museum, but in Tokyo. (laughs) And um, that, you know, there's deep overhangs and that is very strong when you, for those who have been to the Nezu Museum Mm. um, by Keiji uh, Kengo Kuma, uh, would realise that, you know, there is that sensibility to it. Yeah, I mean, there's, I'd visited that building as well and was very moved by those deep overhangs and the shadow that occurs. And like many architects, I've read um, In Praise of Shadow. And that kind of idea and the, of existing in a shadow, that sort of idea of there being sort of a subconscious to the building and being enveloped by it, and what it means to sort of be in somebody's shadow or sort of to play in the shadows, I was quite attached with. So we played that up with the building by doing that very dark exterior, very much the shadow, but inside it's very warm. It's all timber. So that's and sort plywood. Of, Plywood, timber, and timber lining—that's right. So there's a very, there's a warm glow to it. All the lighting is up lighting, so it reflects off those timber surfaces. So I sort of, I like to feel like it's what would it feel like to be inside of some, you know, someone's shadow that uh, was protective. What's also really uh, interesting about Cheryl and Martin—they, they love recycling, and you, you're very big on recycling as much as possible. And it was Correct. quite delightful because they found lots of things along the way and then they give you a call and say, look, Anthony, we've just found this new basin or we've yep. just found this timber or these tile, brick tiles in a dumpster. Quite delightful. For an architect, that might just... Many architects would say, look, it's just not going to happen. Just put them back in the in wherever you got them. But I think that's the charm as much as the house itself, that there's beautiful sense of discovery and there's using a, there's materials. There's essentially a story behind every aspect of that project and they were very engaged clients. I've never had as much face-to-face time with a client. that They would call up when we would discuss things and then they would say, Anthony, I think that maybe we should come in and, and I would said yes every time. They were wonderful to deal with. Um, you raised the example of the, the pavers, which is a great example. Um, Martin called me from the roadside and said, look, there's a there's a dumpster here with all these landscape pavers. Do you think we can use them? And I was like, well, let's get them and we'll see. And we actually, that was the great part of that process is, is you take landscape pavers, but we didn't use them as landscape pavers. We used them for the bathroom floor tiles. Mm. And I never would have specified that, you know, for a normal job. It wouldn't have been something I would normally go to. But that's probably one of my favourite, you know, parts of that but house is that the, paver. The other bathroom. thing is Cheryl uh, would source tiles from these factories yeah. and would get, say, three square metres of one colour and then three square metres of another colour because that was the last in the run and then present those to you and say, look, I've bought three metres of this, three metres of that. And you've kind of worked it through almost like a quite a, a moody patchwork quilt in bathrooms which actually is lovely yes i mean 
there was a little bit of a feeling of we're near Hepburn, so let's sort of embrace that kind of the spa feeling, that Japanese kind of onsen aesthetic. So it, it fitted within that. We were never going to try and do a bright and white bathroom, but there is a lot of character to those spaces. Um, Anthony, yeah, obviously the client's very important in, in the success of any project, but you must have people who ring and who have the tear sheets and magazines the Marble Island benches, which aren't particularly your strength. I mean, I think you look at other materials. If a client isn't right, do you kind of nip it in the bud or do you try and... Because it's a lot of work to educate people into where you want to take them to. There is. I mean, we go through quite an exhaustive, uh, what we call a pre-design process. So we, we I... I say to people when they come in, and, and some people are very beautifully organised and they have got their brief written down about what they want, and I say, look, that's great, we will take that, but we'll return it to you. So we'll come back to you with other aspects. And we build this up over a, over a number of weeks and develop the brief together. So when somebody comes and says, well, I want this in my house, I often sort of turn that around and say, well, that's... Let's let's work out what's behind that. Why you want these particular things, and and we discuss it and see how it becomes incorporated. So, it there's a bit of a to and a fro. I don't. I haven't come across anybody yet that I've gone. That's it. I can't work with you. That's unreasonable. Um, although I did do a job with my mother, and that's probably as <laughs> close as that I've got. But, uh, no, generally people are, are really great, and, and mm. you know, I completely understand the situation that a lot of people come from. They, they haven't worked with an architect before. Mm. How do they know what sort of budget to expect, or how long it was going to take, and and what sort of information that they and need? There's so many things that can go wrong, and it's not anyone's fault. It's just something that happens. Older buildings like this little Victorian cottage in Dalesford, you take away a wall and you don't know what you're going to find. Right. I mean, it, it, there's a number of decisions along the whole process, and that's what I enjoy. I, like, I, it's, it's not, I'm not dictating from above. I'm not an Ayn Rand character and, and sort of stipulating this is the way it has to be. It's um, working together and answering those questions together as we go through. So it, it's fun. Any more plans to travel? Always plans to travel, yes, <laughs> but not not for a long not for a long period of time. I must say that my my next destination that I'm planning um, is Israel. I'm actually very fascinated in going to Israel at the moment. Well, they have a lot of um, uh, Bauhaus architecture. Yes, exactly. The largest concentration of Bauhaus yes. buildings of anywhere. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They're now my next spot. Look, Anthony, it's been a pleasure having you on my program. You're Thank you so it. much for coming in. Oh, been, and well great. done on the award. Thank you. Even though it didn't get a huge amount of publicity. Um, well done. It really is a charming place. And uh, I felt very privileged to be able to visit it. So thanks again. Oh, thanks, Tim. It's always great to have a, have a chat and talk about myself. <laughs> You've been listening to Talking Design with Stephen Crafty. And I've been talking to Anthony Martin, uh, Director of MRTN Architects. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>